If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 67. We're going to be at, looking at Psalm 67 today. That's page 481 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Psalm 67. Well, today is Orphan Sunday, as you've already heard. If you're not familiar with Orphan Sunday, it's a week when churches all over the world spend time reflecting on God's love for orphans and how he might be calling each of us to care for orphans as families, individual families, or as a church. Now, if you've been around Redeemer much over the years, and you know that we, we talk a lot about orphan care and foster care and adoption, and that's it's a wonderful thing. There are several families in our church who are directly involved in those things and many others who joyfully support, love, and encourage those families. But I do want to be very honest with you today about this subject. One of my biggest fears in talking about orphan care is that many of you would leave here today just feeling guilty. That really is a fear of mine. In fact, it's a fear of mine pretty much any time I preach about anything. As a pastor, one of the easiest things I can do, and something I'm, I think I'm actually very good at, is making people feel guilty. If I have a spiritual gift, it's probably the spiritual gift of um, the guilt trip. And so it's just a very easy thing for me uh, to do. And here's the thing about guilt. It's actually a very effective short-term motivator. I could probably flash a bunch of statistics about the thousands of orphans that exist throughout the world and show some heart-wrenching photos of kids eating rice in some remote village, play a Sarah McLaughlin song, and then talk about all the ways we spend our money frivolously on ourselves, right? And then many of us would leave here highly motivated to care for these poor children, at least for a little while. Because here's the other thing about guilt, is that it eventually goes away. We, we have all kinds of ways to rid ourselves of guilt. When the freshness of the guilt subsides, or we suppress the guilt enough, or we do something, something good, to ease our conscience, and we just kind of go back to business as usual. So my goal today, and this is what I hope and I pray for, is not to make you feel guilty for not doing enough for orphans. You see, the Christian life is not about doing enough to not feel guilty when the preacher preaches. Guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. This is true for pretty much anything in the Christian life. This passage we're gonna look at today is actually a passage many people use to talk about missions and evangelism. Now, talk about guilt, right? How many of us often feel guilty when it comes to missions and evangelism? So again, if you're here today um, feeling motivated, if you leave here today feeling motivated by guilt, then I have probably failed. So that's not what I'm hopefully here to do, is to just lay a guilt trip on you. But today we're going to look at Psalm 67. I want us to be motivated by something other than a guilty conscience. Okay? I don't want us to be motivated by fear or just trying to suppress these feelings of, of inadequacy and like I don't do enough, right? There's a better motivation that exists. 
It's worship, and that's my goal today. I hope that we're gonna see that in Psalm 67. So, this passage, like I said, is often used to talk about taking the gospel to the nations, and rightly so. But today I want us to see how it might apply not just to missions, but to orphan care. And my hope today is that we would all come to realize that missions and orphan care actually go hand in hand. They are born from the same motivation and they aim at the same goal. Psalm 67 is what's known as a chiasm. Um, You want to put that first slide up there, Shelby? Thank you. A chiasm is a particular way Hebrew writers structure their literature, okay? You can think of a chiasm like a boomerang. The writer starts with an idea then moves on to a second idea, and then on to a third idea, then moves back to the second, and then back to the first. So it's like a boomerang. It goes out, it comes back. The author ends where he starts. Another way to think about a chiasm is like climbing a mountain. What's the best part about climbing a mountain? I don't really know. I've never climbed a mountain. I would assume it would be getting to the top, right? You have the beginning of the climb, you have the middle of the climb, then you get to the top. And on your way down, you go back to the middle, you come back to the beginning. That's kind of how a chiasm works. And so here's, here's Psalm 67 in a summary chiastic form. You have A and A, top and the bottom, right? B and B, and then C is in the middle. The author starts with that idea, moves on to the B idea, goes to the C, back to the B, back to the A. There's all kinds, this structure is all over Hebrew poetry. It's in the New Testament as well. It's just a regular way that the biblical writers structured their arguments, structured their poetry. Now, why is this important, right? What's the point? Who cares about this? Well, the reason it's important is because the point of the chiasm is to highlight the mountain peak. It's the thing in the middle, right? It's when you get to the top. That's what we want to focus on today. Now, what is the thing in the middle? We're going to read this in a minute, but there it is. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the top of the mountain. You're on your way there, you get there, you come back down. Today, I want us to spend some time in meditation on this psalm. And when we, when we do, my hope is that we will see that we have been blessed. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others to the glory of God. Very simple. That's, I think, what the point of this psalm is. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others to the glory of God. Let's read Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There's three points to my message today. The first is this. I want us to meditate on the blessings of God. 
Let's meditate on the blessings of God. Now, how many of us, if we were reading Psalm 67, would just read right through it without really slowing down to really consider what it's saying? Look at verses 1 and 7. It's that chiastic structure that we had up um, at the beginning. What is a psalmist trying to get his readers to do? He wants them to remember God's blessing. Twice in these verses, he mentions the blessing of God. He also mentions God's gracious activity and God's face shining upon his people. All of these phrases are meant to turn our attention to the abundant blessing and favor we have received from God. How quickly, how quickly we forget God's blessings, don't we? Let's take some time and consider how much God has given us? How much has he given you? Let's just think about physical blessings for a minute, physical, material things. Every breath you take is a gift from God. If you're alive today, and I assume that you all are, and though some of you have your eyes closed, it is because God is sustaining you. You don't keep your heart beating You don't keep your lungs breathing. Our bodies are amazing creations that we often take for granted almost every moment of every day. If you're here today, you are being blessed. What about food and water and shelter? How many of us have that? But the fact is, we all have way more than what we just need to survive, don't we? We live in a land of abundance and plenty According to the global rich list, if you make $20,000 a year, you're in the top 12% of the wealthiest people in the world, $20,000. If you earn $30,000, you're in the top 7.5%. $60,000 puts you in the top 1%. We hear a lot about one percenters, don't we, these days? Now, I realize there's a lot more behind those numbers, right? Like cost of living, life circumstances, all that stuff, but really... Just look around. We have it good where we are, don't we? We have been abundantly blessed. We cannot deny that fact. What about your job that provides enough for you to live? It's so easy, oh man, I know this, it's so easy to complain about our jobs and dread going to work every day, but when was the last time you thanked God for providing a job for you at all? When many people across the world would love to work and earn a living, but they can't. What about technology that makes our lives more comfortable and efficient? The many wonders of modern medicine. How many of you had sickness or infections that, had you had them a hundred years ago, you probably would have died? I don't know if that's true for me, but I've had a couple kidney stones I am thankful for the wonders of modern medicine. When I went into that emergency room, I thought I was, the first one I had, I thought I was dying. I don't know what was wrong. Kind of give you a little bit of morphine. Hmm. Wonders of modern medicine, right? The pain just, ooh, just kind of goes away, right? A hundred years ago, not going to happen, Right? Of all the blessings we have received from God, these physical ones seem to be the kind we take for granted the most, aren't they? We live among these gifts every day, almost every hour of every day. 
And yet these are the kinds of things we fail to thank God for, like ungrateful little children. We complain, we moan. What about our relational blessings? Think for a moment about your own family. Have they cared for you well? Did you grow up in a family with a mother and a father who cared for you well? Many of us have had the great privilege of growing up in homes where the gospel was taught. Our parents raised us in the fear and knowledge of God. Our parents stayed married. Have you ever considered what an undeserved blessing that is for you? What about a church family where you can find belonging, a home? Our hope is that you would find Redeemer to be that place. But if not, what a gift a church family is to each of us. What about friendships that are meaningful? Do you have people you can count on no matter what? Even if you sin against them or hurt them or offend them, will they stick by you and with you and forgive you? Can you bear your soul to them without worrying about them rejecting you? What a blessing. What a blessing. But what about our spiritual blessings, right? We've already got way more than we deserve, just in what we've looked at. But what about the spiritual blessings that God has given us? Ephesians 1 outlines a whole host of spiritual blessings we have received. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. If you're a believer, that's true of you. We've been predestined for adoption. That means God predestined you to be part of his family. Before you were ever born or had done anything good or bad, he said, Kyle's going to be mine. Keith is going to be mine. You had no, you contributed nothing to that. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus We have forgiveness of sins. We've been lavished with the riches of his grace. This is all in Ephesians 1. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. We can know the will of God. We are part of God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ. These are some pretty serious spiritual blessings worthy of sermons and books and our meditation every day. What about others in the, that the New Testament mentions? The New Testament, that's pretty much all it is. You realize that, right? It's just one big promise. It's just like a list of everything that we've received in Christ. We've been united with Christ, Romans 6. Fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8. A new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We were, many of us, at one time, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. But now we've been washed sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. (laughs) Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. (laughs) That's what, 10, maybe 12 spiritual blessings? The list goes on and on and on. We could spend hours meditating on all the passages of Scripture that describe our spiritual blessings. But let's focus on one of them right now, just for a little bit. Our adoption into the family of God. We're talking about orphan care. If you are here and you are in Christ, God is your heavenly Father. You have been adopted into his family. Why do we say adopted? It's because you 
we are not entitled to any standing in God's family. We have actually turned our backs against God. We are not cute, innocent little children who are just lost in the woods and need a little help finding our way out. We are rebel sinners who really want to be kings and queens of our own little universes. There is a natural desire in each of us to reject the lordship of Christ and place ourselves on his throne. I want to be called Lord. And yet Jesus came to rescue us and to bring us home to him. As one commentator says, God did not find us like an abandoned baby bundled on the front step and irresistibly cute. We're not little Harry Potters, right? With a cute scar on our face, the chosen ones. No, God found us ugly and evil and rebellious. We were not attractive. We would not be easy children to deal with. And what's worse, God himself was angry with us. He hates sin and rebellion, so we are then doubly children of wrath. And yet these are the ones God pursues in adoption. This adoption is completely a work of sovereign grace. It's apart from any good thing or bad thing that we have done. You cannot earn it. It is done for you. There is a work outside of you who con- that comes to you and rescues you. And now we stand as fellow heirs with Jesus in the blessings of the Father, in the household of God, the family of God. We share in the blessings that Christ has, the Son of God. We are now his brothers and sisters. We are now his friends There's a song I grew up singing in my church as a child called Count Your Blessings. One of the last verses says this, when upon life's billows you are tempest tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Church, how much would our lives change if we would spend time each day meditating on the rich, unending blessings we have received in Christ, the physical, the material, the relational, and especially the spiritual Actually, our lives probably wouldn't change that much externally. But don't you think your heart would? Don't you think you would be filled with so much more joy and less complaining, more contentment in your circumstances so you can stop striving for something different, more thankfulness and less jealousy? Let's make it a regular habit to reflect and thank God for his abundant blessing. So first, meditate on the blessings of God. But what's the point? Why? Why do we meditate on the blessings of God? You see, our blessings are not meant to be an end in themselves. This leads me to my second point. Let's meditate on the condition 
of the orphan. Meditate on the condition of the orphan. You have been blessed so that you can bless others. Look at verse 2 in Psalm 67. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. You can put the word so in front of that, S-O. So that your way may be known on earth. It's a purpose statement. So that God's ways and saving power would be known among all nations. You have been blessed so that you can be a blessing to the nations. You have received the grace of God so that the grace of God might be made known to all the peoples of the earth. Your blessing is meant to be utilized for the blessing of others. Particularly, as we see throughout Scripture, those who are less fortunate than you. And the scripture mentions these categories of people several times, widows, orphans, and foreigners or sojourners who come into your land. This is how God has designed the world to work. As he saves his people with his mighty power, they are to be a light to the nations, to declare his praise and his glory. And through that, God continues to gather and to save. Ask yourself this, is that how you view your life? Is that how you view what you have been given? When I'm honest with myself, so often that's not how I view my life. What's my tendency? My tendency is to get all I can, can all I get, and sit on my can. Just build it up, right? Just to get more. Just get a collection of things to enjoy for myself. And why not, right? God has blessed me, after all. I'm enjoying God's blessing. But today, let's spend some time considering the state of the orphan. Now, I want us to do this by looking at what Scripture says about those who are living apart from Christ. I want us to see that the state of the orphan, or a child in need, is not very different from the state of an unbeliever. So again, let's, let's think about Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to Ephesians 2, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. We're going to ask the, the, the question, what is the condition of the unbeliever? What does it mean to be apart from Christ? Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. I'm going to turn there too. I forgot I didn't put it in here. Ephesians 2, verse 11. It says this, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we see what is the condition of those apart from Christ? First, we see they are separated, they are alienated, and they are strangers. These words hearken back to the dark day in the Garden of Eden when God cast Adam and Eve out of his perfect presence. To be removed from the presence of the Lord is the worst kind of judgment anyone can face. Remember the words that Jesus will speak to those who think they know him but actually don't. Depart from me, be separated from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. 
Church, the only hope we have in eternity rests on the simple truth of whether or not we are known by Christ. If you are known by him, there is nothing more you need. But if you are separated, alienated, and strangers to Christ, then the only thing left for you is the judgment of God. And this is exactly where every unbeliever is right now. Just contemplate the effects of being separated, alienated, and strangers to God. And that's where we all were at one point in our lives. Some of you still may be there. I remember it. I remember those those thoughts. I remember those feelings. I remember what it was like to be striving after the wind to be being separated and alienated from God. We also see that they have no hope. The unbeliever's life is marked by a bitter hopelessness. He says they have no hope and without God in the world. Apart from Christ, we are blind to ultimate meaning in the world. Things like suffering and pain and death seem completely random and purposeless. As human beings, when we don't have eyes to see the purpose of things, we become hopeless, right? This is where hopelessness comes from. We don't see purpose. Just things just happen. There's no explanation. There's no ultimate meaning behind reality, and so we lose hope. Unbelievers have no hope. Will things ever change for me? If not, then there is really a point to this life. We also see that apart from Christ, we are without God in the world. This is perhaps the most devastating reality for those apart from Christ. To be without God is the epitome of God's judgment. It reminds me of Exodus 33. After the Israelites make the golden calf and they start worshiping this false idol, God sends a plague among them. And then he tells them, oh yeah, by the way, go ahead and do what you were going to do anyway, which is go into the promised land and drive out the Canaanites who who were living there. And he even promises to send an angel before them to do it. But in verse 3, in Exodus 33, God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. And how does Moses respond? Lord, if you do not go with us, don't even send us. You can send all the angels you want, Lord. (laughs) If you are not with us, we are condemned. To be without God, life loses all ultimate meaning Without God, we are left to, to ourselves to forge ahead on our own into the darkness. And the last thing that we see about the unbeliever is that they are powerless to change their situation. Uh, we especially see that as we read on in Ephesians and even before this. But unbelievers are powerless to change their situation. They are separated alienated and strangers. They have no hope and are without God and they are powerless to change their situation. This is the state, again, that everyone here was in before Christ. 
There is nothing we can do to change ourselves. No amount of good works, no amount of good intentions or good vibes or good thoughts change this about us. You cannot change your own heart. No amount of Bible reading or church service can save you. Our hope is only in one thing, the sovereign grace of God invading our lives. God himself, by the work of his spirit, must create new life. This happens as the gospel is proclaimed and the light switch is turned on and we see Christ, even though we may have heard this gospel message a thousand times, for some reason, this time, we see Christ as beautiful, satisfying, worthy of our worship. And we cannot help but turn from our sin and run to him. Has that happened for you? I remember when it happened for me. I remember when I was 17 years old at this camp called Super Summer down in Greenville College. I heard the gospel proclaimed again. I grew up in church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I heard the gospel message over and over and over. I thought I was a believer. Something was different that day, that night. The Lord saved me. The light switch was turned on. Christ, in a way that he never was before, was satisfying and worthy of my worship. It did not matter what he called me to do or who he called me to be. I had to be with him. I had to follow him. This is something we cannot do to ourselves. You can't do it. We are dead. It must be done for us. So church, I hope you understand your own helpless condition apart from Christ. This is what it means to be a spiritual orphan. We're all there, every human being. But what is the condition of the actual physical orphan? Are they separated, alienated, and strangers in a physical sense? Yes. In fact, that is a very accurate description of what it means to be an orphan. If you've ever spent time around children who have been institutionalized, you can see this. And by the way, that's how we do orphanages now in America. We don't really have orphanages in the traditional um, kind of old style sense. We now have group homes, children's homes, right? Even hospitals at times where children who have been taken from their homes or who parents have died or whatever the situation may have been, they are now living oftentimes in a place where there are other children in the same situation, group homes, children's homes. If you've spent any time around them, and I have, I worked at a children's home for about seven years, you see the effects of their alienation. They don't feel like they really belong anywhere. They're always searching, trying out different identities, this is why many children who grow up apart from a stable home end up adopting so many negative habits and lifestyles. They simply adopt what others are doing around them, as any child does. But without a family to give them a sense of belonging, they are left to themselves to find one. What about no hope? Are orphans without hope? So often, yes, they are. 
In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore talks about the first time he walked into a Russian orphanage. It was a room full of Russian babies, and it was dead silent. Why was it silent? It's because the babies learned from very early on in their lives that their cries would not be answered. So they just stopped crying. He says, I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. That's his wife, Maria. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies, he said. And both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. A nursery is a place of life and screaming and and noise, right? But here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food or comfort or love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. That's the sense of hopelessness that abounds in the lives of children who have needs that regularly go unmet. They just stop trying. They learn to cope in negative ways. They distrust everyone, and eventually life becomes hopeless. Now, I'm not saying this is the case for every child, okay? I'm not saying this is the case for every kid who grows up without a stable family. But again, if you've spent time around children, especially teenagers or preteens, who have experienced abuse or neglect or have been in and out of the foster care system, this is exactly what you're going to see. You're going to see it played out over and over again. There is a settled hopelessness that comes from knowing you have no one in your life to consistently count on. That has huge, huge impact on the development of a child in every area. What about the orphan's power? Are they powerless to change their situation? Yes, they are. Someone from outside of them must act. Someone with the resources and the desire must act on behalf of the orphan or things will never change. And this is the point I'm getting at. We were all At one time, spiritual orphans. And yet God in his abundant grace reached down and rescued us from our desperate, helpless state. And as we look around us and see the needs of the world, we cannot turn a blind eye to those who are in the same desperate condition, whether spiritual or physical. Who are those who have been blessed and have the ability to bless those in need? If it's not us, then who? We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, as Katrina read earlier on this earth. Yes, there are some needs we simply cannot meet. We cannot change hearts. Even if we adopt all the orphans into our home, we cannot change their hearts. We cannot do what only the Holy Spirit can do, but we can do something. What might God be calling you to do? What blessing have you received? that you can use to bless someone else. You have been blessed so that you can be a blessing to others. My last point. So we've seen meditate on the blessing of God. 
meditate on the state of the orphan and or the condition of the orphan and meditate on the glory of God. As I said before, this is the central idea of Psalm 67, the joyful praise and honoring of the Lord and his people. What's the deepest motivation for turning our blessings into missional activity, whether that's sharing the gospel, going to the nations, adopting children, whatever it is? What is the motivation? Is it our own compassion? Compassion's good. We need compassion. Our compassion will run dry. I might be compassionate today. Maybe not tomorrow, right? It's really easy to ignore Is it our love for our fellow man? We need love for our fellow man. That's a good thing. Lord, create in us love for our fellow man. Is that our ultimate, deepest motivation? No, because that's going to run dry, especially when our fellow man doesn't live up to our expectations. If you're adopting or you're wanting to be involved in orphan care because you love them and you find them cute and funny and hilarious, they will disappoint you. They will let you down. Children are gross in so many ways, right? As we all are. Babies make messes. So what's our motivation? Is it a guilty conscience? We can certainly learn how to ignore that, right? The deepest Motivation, at least what I want to be true, what I want to be true for us is that our greatest, deepest motivation for orphan care is the glory of God through the joyful praise of his people. These are both found in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. One of the most amazing things about the Christian life is this. God has designed us in such a way that he gets the most glory from us when we are the happiest in him. Okay, God gets the most glory when we are happiest in him. So we really can make it our life mission to be the happiest people on earth. And this is true for every human being on the planet. This is a great book. I'm going to quote from it, A Passion for the Fatherless. Um, I need to give this back to somebody. I think it's Smith's. <laughs> Remind me. <laughs> uh, great book. Um, I get a lot of the things I'm saying today from this book. Um, if you haven't read it, it's, it's fantastic. It's on, on, on orphan care. This is what the author says. He says, In missions... And orphan care ministry, we use our temporary material possessions to proclaim the immeasurable value of Christ so that others can engage in joyful worship of him. That's the point of this message. We use our blessing to bless others so that they can engage in joyful worship of God. That is the goal, the worship of Christ. The goal is not to just build a family. The goal is not even to meet physical needs. That's great. We need to do it. But the reason we do that is because we want worshipers of God. We know what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord. There is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing that gives greater joy than to be in the presence of the Lord. Oh, I want that for my kids. I want that for orphans. I want that for our neighbors. I want that for the nations. That is the ultimate goal of any orphan care ministry. That should be the ultimate goal. 
Our greatest motivation for orphan care and missions is because there are millions of people who were made to worship God and to find their highest happiness in knowing and enjoying His blessings, but who are living in that hopeless, helpless condition that we've just seen. You see, the goal of orphan care is not just to bring children into your home and give them more stuff. It's, not to, it's to help them see that they can only find their ultimate joy and satisfaction in worshiping their risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We meet temporal physical needs, absolutely. We shower them with material blessings and give them comfort and care that they need and long for. But as Christians, we're called to care for the physical needs of people all around us. But we must never do so at the neglect of pointing them to their soul's greatest desire to be eternally satisfied in the presence of God. Who are those in Psalm 67 who sing for joy with praise and gladness? It's those who recognize that we have been abundantly blessed by God. If the glory of God is not our motivation for orphan care, then we will have a hard time sticking it out when times get tough. This is a line I heard several years ago about missions, and I'm just going to adapt it to um, orphan care. If the romance of adopting a child drives you toward orphan care, the reality of adoption will drive you away. I would say this is definitely the case for foster care. If your motivation for caring for orphans is to fulfill your own hopes and dreams of having a perfect family, you will probably be left disappointed because that child isn't going to be perfect. The fact is, caring for children requires sacrifice and work. Raising any, chill, any child is one of the hardest things you will ever do, but bringing children into your home who have been hurt or damaged or abused or addicted to drugs and then try to love them, church, that's impossible in our own strength. You can't do it. If your motivation for orphan care is to be the savior of all these little boys and girls, you will be disappointed. They will not see you as their savior. They will probably reject you over and over. Children do not often recognize things parents do for them. They take things for granted. They scheme to get more. They're often ungrateful. Does that sound like someone else you know? How we treat the blessings of God? And yet God calls us to continue to love, give, and sacrifice on their behalf for his glory. That's the goal. God is glorified when his people joyfully bless others with the blessings we have received. If your motivation is to bring glory to God through self-sacrificial love and unconditional acceptance of whatever He brings into your life, then your priorities are in line with God's. You see, ultimately, worship, worship is the fuel and the goal of orphan care. We give sacrificially of ourselves out of worship when we remember what we have received from our Father. That's why we meditated on what we have received, what we have been blessed with. 
And the goal of our giving is to see God glorified through the worship of people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. This happens as the gospel is lived out and proclaimed through orphan care. Are you considering adopting? Make the glory of God your goal. Are you considering foster care? Make the glory of God your goal. Are you considering supporting someone as they do these things? Make the glory of God your goal. Are you considering donating bus passes and coats and doing a thousand other things that we can do as a church to bless uh, agencies and children and parents? Make the glory of God your goal. If you're here today as a child of God, you have been adopted so that you might praise his glorious grace. Your life is meant to magnify the adopting love and mercy of Christ. We sing about it. We proclaim it to our neighbors and the nations. We celebrate it with our church family every week. It's what holds our families together. Church, the hope for the orphan is the same hope as that for the unbeliever, that someone would go to them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's continue That word's important. Let's continue. I don't preach this message because I want us to become this church. I preach this message because I want us to continue to be this kind of church. It's such a blessing to see these things already being lived out in our midst. Thank you. Let's continue to be a church that puts the need of the orphan before ourselves. Let's ask him how each of us might use those blessings for his glory, not out of guilt, that's not our motivation, but out of love, out of worship, out of thankfulness as we remember what we have been given. Adoption or foster care is not for everyone, that's for sure. I question whether it's for me many times. But we are all called to do something. Just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we can't do something. How is God calling you to put his blessings to work in the lives of those who are in need? And remember, God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to someone else for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is It's a remarkable thing to meditate on what we have received in Christ. We thank you for the gift of your word that we have in the pages of scripture, reminders on every page how much favor you have shown us, how much grace we have received. And Lord, I pray that as we consider what you might have us to do now, what action steps you might want us to take as individuals, as couples, as, as families, as a church, as a whole. Lord, that we would, we would pursue obedience, Lord, not to ease a guilty conscience, but we would pursue obedience out of worship and love for you because how could we not? when we have received so much. It is a joy. It, is, it comes from a heart of contentment and joy and overflow and rejoicing and worship because we have received so much in Christ. 
And I pray that that would motivate us, Lord, not just in orphan care, but in every area of obedience. We thank you, God, for your word. Unite our hearts now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.